Hey, Parker. Hey, Carrie. I've been looking so forward to this conversation with Valerie Kaur. She's an amazing author, activist, artist, and human being, and I'm really thrilled that we're going to have the chance to learn about her and her forthcoming book and the revolutionary love movement that she founded. Well, that goes for me too, Carrie, big time. I've known Valerie as a friend for six or seven years, and I don't know of anyone who is in a better position to take us to the growing edge. I agree. So welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Carrie Newcomer. And I'm Parker Palmer. To the words and habits between us And to us and how we live between the words Well, Parker, I have not met Valerie in person, um, but I have been reading her manuscript this week, See No Stranger, which is due out on June 16th, and I am fascinated by her powerful story, and I really deeply resonate with the ideas in her new memoir and manifesto. Yeah, I love that subtitle, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love. And I understand that you must feel that you know her, uh, because everything Valerie writes comes from her mind, her heart, her life. And the book reflects the person that I know and admire so much. So let me just add a few details, although there are so many amazing details about Valerie's life that it could go on for most of this podcast, I think. She's a an activist, not only American, but international. She's a documentary filmmaker with her husband, Sharat. She's a, an attorney an educator and a faith leader rooted in the Sikh tradition. She's received so many honors, um, including the 2015 Young Global Leader Award from the World Economic Forum. And the, and one thing I would note is she's still young. Uh, she, that kind of amazes me because she's less than half my age. Um, the post-9-11 documentary she made with her husband, Sharat, is called Divided We Fall, Americans in the Aftermath, the aftermath of 9-11, of course, and it's won more than a dozen cinema awards. Um, I'll just say one more thing before we welcome Valerie to the podcast. Um, on Watch Night, um, also known as New Year's Eve, um, in 2016, after the general election of that year, uh, Valerie was in Washington, D.C. at the Metropolitan AME Church on stage with Jim Forbes of Riverside Church and the Reverend William Barber. Um, and she gave a really, really remarkable address. I think one of the, uh, I think in, in, in our time, one of the great speeches made in this, in this country in which she reflected deeply and personally on the darkness that was descending upon America, the night that was descending upon our country. Um, and she was, of course, deeply personal about it. She talked about a man she called Uncle, who was the first person uh, assassinated after 9-11 because Someone thought he was one of the perpetrators. And she talked about her young son, a brown boy, who would be growing up 
in a society that is very dangerous to children of color. And as you worked your way through this description of the times in which we live, she looked up and she said, but is it possible that this is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? And with that phrase and her elaboration of it, the possibility of new birth in our country, um, she gained millions of followers around the world who have been really mesmerized by her work ever since. I'm one of them. Valerie, welcome, welcome, welcome to The Growing Edge. We're so happy to have you here. I am so delighted to be with you both and so moved by you, Parker. Thank you. Well, thank you for spending time with us. I know you've been working on the uh, audio version of, of your new book, but we're just delighted to have you with us. Thank you. Because of the pandemic, all the studios in Los Angeles have been closed, and so I've been recording my audiobook from my bedroom closet the last <laughs> week, and this is where I'm speaking to you both now. So. <laughs> well, that, that's a I first like for the growing edge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted to be able to be with you. So, Valerie, I, I guess after hearing that really powerful um, story uh, about that speech on watch night, um, could I ask you, I guess, to elaborate a little further. Uh, what got you into this? Uh, what do you mean by revolutionary love? Oh, well, I have been an activist since 9-11, since Bulbir Singh Sodhi, who I called Bulbir Uncle, was the first to be murdered in a hate crime after 9-11. His murder really turned me into an activist. And I had spent the last 15-some years uh, working with brown and black communities across the country, going from campaign to campaign, community to community, kind of expanding my toolkit. And I looked up one day, and I had just become a new mother, and it was the 2016 presidential election season, and hate crimes were skyrocketing. In fact, they were exceeding the levels that we had seen in the aftermath of 9-11. And I had an existential crisis. I thought a generation of us has stepped up in order to make the nation safer for our children. And what was it all for? All those films that we made, all those lawsuits we filed, all those campaigns we led, all the organizations we built. If my son is now growing up as a little brown boy with long hair who may someday wear his hair in a turban as part of his faith, if he's growing up in a nation that's more dangerous for him than it was for me. And so I, um, I opened up my toolkit and I just felt completely paralyzed. And for the first time, I didn't jump into crisis response. I had to take a time back, time away. And I had to think. And I poured through the stories of my life. And I poured through the texts that I had acquired over the years around social justice movements in the past. And I thought... Out of all of the, the work that we had done with these communities, it was never our film or our lawsuit or our campaign that ultimately made the change for the people I worked with. It was something completely unexpected that I had not seen until that moment. It was the ethic of love. If love was present with these communities, if they were 
if they were receiving love in the wake of massacre, if they were responding to hate and violence and injustice with love, if they were loving themselves in the process, then then I could see how people could last and survive and build resilience and start to create pockets of transformation in their lives and their communities. But without that ethic, I, I saw the same despair that was beginning to creep into my own heart seep in. So I thought, in order for me to last, <laughs> mm. I needed to figure out how to root my life and my activism, uh, not just in the energy of outrage, but in the ethic of love and the practice of love. And I began to realize that, you know, we, we live in a culture that teaches us that love is just this this flood of emotion, a, a, a something romantic that feels good we fall in love as if we're falling into a jar of honey. And, and I really do love romantic love. Like it is <laughs> uh, one of the great joys in life. Um, but it's only a tiny spectrum of what we understand to be love as an ethic. And I thought, I thought back to all the spiritual teachers through history, the social reformers, even just caregivers and how, how we know that love is more than a feeling. Love is sweet labor fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving. It is a choice we make over and over again. And when we choose to love beyond what evolution requires, when we choose to love beyond our own kin, when we love others who do not look like us, when we love even our opponents, when we love ourselves who we too often neglect, then love becomes revolutionary. And so I started to realize and speak into the call of revolutionary love as the call of our times. And that is what led me to show up that night on watch night um, with this um, call of revolutionary love and offer uh, an image to the country that was keeping me alive right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful definition of love. Um, it, It makes me think, as I think I've shared with you before, of a quote from Dostoevsky that Dorothy Day, one of my heroes, um, was fond of, where Dostoevsky said, love in action is a, is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Um, I don't know that you'd agree with that altogether, but I wonder if, if you have reflections on it that would take us a little deeper into our understanding of revolutionary love, which I've also said is is a reframing of the nonviolent movement of the mid 20th century for our times. And I deeply believe it to be that. Yes. Yes. If, if we think about love as labor, as, as action, then love is, is, it can be taught, it can be modeled, it can be practiced. And when we think about love as labor, it's not any one emotion. In fact, it engages all of our emotions. Joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Anger protects that which is loved. And when we think we have reached our limit, then wonder returns us to love. And so when we think about love in this way, then we begin to honor and engage and and harness all the entire spectrum of human emotions in, in that labor of love. And I think that is helping me quite a bit right now when there's so much to be angry about or there's so much to grieve um, to, to understand how 
um, inhabiting our emotions and grieving together and raging together and breathing together and pushing together, that all of that is part of the labor of love. Hmm. I, I'm really so moved by the, the imagery and the, the, and what you're saying about love as being the answer. And, and sometimes, you know, that can sound flowery, but you're not saying something flowery or candy-coated at all. You're saying something about love that is faithful and true and fierce and beautiful. You know, you're, you're talking about love in a different context and the action of love uh, having this wider kind of look in the world. And I, I really love that. I mean, just I love how you put it together. Thank you. I remember shortly after the presidential election, I called Parker and I said, I just, I felt like we had failed or I felt like I had failed as if, you know, as if I could have prevented the election. But I, <laughs> I think it's one of the the dangers of, of activists who feel like, you know, I, I, I can, I could have done so much more. I should have done so much more. And Parker said, you know, I, I don't think that it's very useful to judge your your work or your life based on outcomes, that that's too narrow a view, that perhaps it's more life-giving to to measure your success by your faithfulness to the labor, your faithfulness to the labor. And he said, by that measure, you're, you're succeeding beyond <laughs> our <laughs> dreams. And, and yes. I thought about that, like the faithfulness to the labor of love. And, and I think this is how I'm understanding that I will last now, that I, I was falling apart before when I thought about um, just the, the, our activism or our work being a means to an end. But if we think about the work that we do as labor, that is an end in itself. And if we're laboring in love, then it is porous enough to let joy in, that there is possible, it's possible to have joy in the struggle, joy in the labor. Then I can, now I found a way to labor my whole life through. That injustice has gone on before I was born. It will go on after. And so if my entire life can be um, this devotion to the labor of love, then I know I will last. I, I know that I will grow old. I know that I will grow old with you. Um, and and then pass on the torch to the next generation to to take it further. You know, Valerie, it's so interesting for me to hear you say that because, uh, and this is one of the things I value so much about intergenerational friendships and working relationships. I, I said those words and then you proceeded to teach me what they meant. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I truly mean that. I've learned so much from you about about uh, the, the notion of faithfulness to, to hard labor, to sweet labor, to painful labor. Um, and I've learned a lot by the fact that you've contexted important parts of what you're doing uh, in the experience of childbirth and child rearing among women of color um, who know very well that the children they're birthing and raising are coming up in a society that is not uh, hospitable to their interests, um, and I, uh, that's something. That's a thought that never ever leaves me. That that also leads me, Valerie, um, not only to ask what you may think about all of that, but uh, I want to lift up. And I know that Carrie shares my deep interest in this. The fact that that 
that you do not exclude from love anger and rage. Um, just, just to put it plainly, um, a lot of people who are on a spiritual path, who wish to be good people, feel somehow that anger and rage are taboo, and they're a sign that you've fallen off the wagon. Um, I, I don't feel that way myself. Carrie doesn't feel that way herself. But for me, at least, it's been a journey to get there. Uh, in my case, as a person who was raised Christian, to understand that my own tradition has a lot of validation of anger in it, prophetic speech. Um, you know, the prophets weren't, weren't Hallmark card people, um, but it, that's a piece of our tradition that gets buried uh, for the sake of, quote, making nice. I, I'd love to hear your reflections about the role of anger and even rage. Yes, Parker, I'd like to tell you a story that um, will give you my answer to this. A few months ago, before the pandemic, my parents had taken my son to a concert. And my son, who was four years old, was sitting on my father's shoulder, just on top of the world. And on their way home, they decided they would take a ferry to cross the bay to come home. And as they were waiting for the ferry to come, they heard an irate voice. There was a woman who was in an argument with the ferry conductor. And my father, who was ever trying to be helpful, stepped in and said, can I help you? You can go around this way if you can't wait for the ferry. And the woman just spun around, took one look at my father and said, go back to the country you came from. And my father, who's hard of hearing, had to have my son lean down and tell my father what the woman had said. <sighs> So my parents come home totally devastated and I say, well, didn't anyone say anything? And they said, well, no, they were, there was a crowd of people, but no one said anything. Just like last time when the slur was suicide bomber or the time before that when the slur was sand nigger. And that night as I put my son to sleep, I remember asking him, you know, where do you feel the sadness in your body? And he pointed to his belly and I kissed his belly and he felt better and he was starting to fall asleep. And my mind started racing. I could feel my heart beating fast. I could feel my fists clench. It was rage just coursing through my body, wanting to protect my parents, wanting to protect my son, having all of these tools, even, even now like working in the, in the field of calling for love and still, still feeling so helpless. And suddenly, as my mind is just going on and on, I'm thinking the president has said, go back to your country. These are the words that precede acts of violence and all the hate crimes I've ever documented. My parents and my son were, were lucky today. And as my mind was racing like this, suddenly my son puts his ear on my mouth and says, mommy, I not hear you breathing. <laughs> he said, oh. And so I started to take deep breaths. And he, then he says, Breathe and push, mommy. Oh. <laughs> All this time, I had no idea my son knew my work in the world, knew my words in the world, and here he was giving my own tools back to me. And I thought, oh my God, my son has become my midwife. <laughs> I think that's it, Parker. That's a four-dimensional answer. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I love the story on every... Well, it's it's tragic on one level and, and 
and and just heartbreaking on a level but this other idea of of you know having this rage and and desire to protect uh, the people you love and and what you love and uh, and then your son giving your words back to you I mean what a what a what a beautiful moment um but I I think too this idea of rage you know this idea of of this kind of holy anger you know this it's hard for people who as Parker was mentioning you know who feel they're on a spiritual journey to to reckon with that but I think it's particularly for women uh, women who speak up women who um, express outrage or I mean we're diminished our voices are squashed I mean you know so I think it's really uh, a powerful element to have a woman step forward and talk about, you know, the energy of, of rage and then also um, the ethic of love at the same time. I was always ashamed of my rage, ashamed of my anger. I thought it meant that I wasn't a kind or good person. And so I would, I would choke it down as soon as it began to rise in me. Mm-hmm. And it was only um, watching my mother show her rage protecting me as a girl that I slowly began to understand that rage was part of the labor of love. I, I'll read a, a portion from my book. and the, the, There are 10 practices of revolutionary love in this book, and one of them is rage. Neurobiologists call oxytocin the love hormone. The more oxytocin in the body, the more care and nurturing mammals show for their babies. Oxytocin decreases aggression in a mother's body overall, with one exception, in defense of her young. When babies are threatened, oxytocin actually increases aggression. In maternal aggression, rage is part of love. It is the biological force that protects that which is loved. I have been learning that the solution is not to suppress our rage or to let it explode, right? Women and girls have been conditioned to suppress their rage. Men and boys have been conditioned to let it explode as a sign of their strength or machismo, but the solution is neither. The solution is to be able to express our rage in safe containers, emotional spaces that are safe enough to express our body's impulses without shame and without harming ourselves or others. Once we've done that, once we've given rage an external expression outside our bodies, then we can be in relationship with it. We can ask ourselves, what information does my rage carry? What is it telling me? And so I, I think about, for example, the, when you're talking about um, rage, noticing rage in your own prophetic tradition, Parker, mm-hmm. I was thinking about rage in, in my tradition. I was thinking about rage in my husband's tradition, the Hindu tradition, and the goddess Kali is the fiercest form of the Divine Mother, right? And she is fierce. I mean, she um, she's clad in tiger skin. She's wearing a garland of skulls. Her mouth is agape, tongue rolling out as she drinks the blood of life. She is protecting us. I began to think about what if we could see our own rage as animal and divine. And so I think about now how divine rage is fierce and disciplined and visionary. Its purpose is not vengeance, but to reorder the world. It's like the focused fury projected into the world from the forehead of the goddess. 
And so perhaps our task as human beings is to find safe containers for our raw reactionary rage and then choose to harness that energy in a way that releases divine rage into the world, that creates a new world for all of us. Mm, mm, mm. That's my dance right now is like I, you know, every time I, I read the news and I see I think about my political opponents, I think about those presidents, I think about lawmakers, I think about the people who are um, breaking stay-at-home orders, <laughs> I think about all of the reasons that fill me with, with outrage, and I find a way to express that, and then to to ask myself, what information is my rage giving me? How can I harness this for for purposeful political social action? Yeah, I think that's uh, such a deep searching and important answer. And I, I think, isn't it true? And I want to start moving into the book. And I know Carrie wants to do that, too, because we want to unpack the book a bit for the sake of our listeners. Um, isn't it the case that what keeps you anchored in that is is having real clarity about what you love and what your rage is attempting to protect. I try to have that conversation with people. And, you know, sometimes when I say, what do you love? What they basically say is money, creature comforts, you know, my own rights. Uh, Who cares about anybody else's? And I think sometimes even to them, it's pretty clear that those are not worthy love objects. But to get them on the table is important. On the other hand, if you say, <clears throat> I love uh, my, my children, uh, I love my family, I love, <clears throat> excuse me, equal opportunity for all people, I love democracy, um, that might be a pretty worthy list of things to feel rage about when they're threatened. That's right. I, I think that people often mistake love with attachment <clears throat> money or security or these objects that perhaps are not worthy of affection and yet make people feel less vulnerable. Those to me sound as though they are attachments. If we think about defining love as what we choose to labor for, Mm -hmm. then we are laboring for our children. We're laboring for democracy. We're laboring for a safe and better world for future generations. Then we can talk about all of the emotions that are required in that process. And to rage to protect that which we most love is worthy. Mm-hmm. And that night when I was holding my son and raging over wanting to protect him, he he's the one who fashioned for me my safe container. If I can breathe through my emotions, if I can breathe through my grief, if I can breathe through my rage, then it creates a little bit of space for me to be in relationship with it, to move through it, to harness it, to break out of any paralysis, to be able to take the next right step. And I think sometimes people equate rage, um, that the kind of rage you're talking about, that is to protect those things and the people you love, uh, you know, I think sometimes rage and hate get kind of mixed up together. Um, and I think we're talking two very different things. In fact, uh, in your book, you describe in, in, in different ways in the, in the three chap, three different parts of the book, how, you know, hate is not the answer that, you know, you can't contain hate. You can't pinpoint uh, hate it grows and it expands and 
Um, but you're not talking about something that uh, with that kind of shadow to it. You're talking about uh, a, a kind of rage that becomes uh, action for, for love, that is grounded in love, that is motivated by love, and also you know, prompts you to act in love. So I think that's kind of an interesting, um, you know, like I said, sometimes the words and, and the ideas get mixed up together, and, and we're talking two very different things. I think when we don't give rage a safe container uh, for expression, when we don't move through our rage, for many of us, it's very easy when it stays contained in our bodies for it to harden into something like hate. Yeah. Or or into depression, which is where I think a lot of people are. Um, pretty well-known psychiatric fact that a lot of depressions are the result of bottled anger. So that's these are such important points. Let's let's step into this amazing book that, that you've written, uh, See No Stranger, uh, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love. And what Carrie and I would like to do is is just walk with you through the first three sections. The the first section is called See No Strangers: Colon Loving Others. Um, does that include the the woman on the boat? who said words to your father that caused me to have an elevated heartbeat when you were telling the story and, in truth, to stop breathing. Um, how do we see no strangers when people act in a way that can uh, be called strange only charitably? Love is dangerous business. That's what my grandfather used to say. Love is dangerous business. <laughs> for, for if you love, if you choose to love, if you choose to see no stranger, then that means seeing everybody, mm -hmm. even that woman at the boat, as a sister, a brother, a sibling. It means to look upon the face of anyone and anything around you and say to yourself, you are a part of me I do not yet know. And that means if you are part of me, I do not yet know that I must choose to wonder about you, even if you do not wonder about me. And in that way, I choose to love you, even if you put me in danger. And I will choose to protect you, even when you are lashing out and hate at me. So I, I was raised with this kind of orientation, this radical orientation to love all others, even my opponents. And yet that orientation to wonder, that orientation to love, was also an orientation to walk the path of social justice. Because if all others are part of me, then I must protect others as if they were my own family. I must pick up my metaphoric sword and shield to fight the good fight, to become a warrior sage. In the Sikh tradition, it's called Santh Sapahi. The warrior fights, the sage loves. So I took it as a path of revolutionary love. The key is to fight in such a way that does not destroy our opponents, but invites them into transformation. And that means, yes, we must remove bad actors from power, but our true goal is to reorder the cultures and institutions that radicalize our opponents. So I have to think about who that woman is listening to on the radio. What is she reading? What is she hearing in her church? What are the norms and policies of the institutions that she moves in that makes her feel like white supremacy is something that 
is that she needs in order to find worth and belonging in this country. And once I begin to be curious, once I begin to wonder even about her and what has wired her to respond that way, then I can fight in a, in a smarter way. And this is the key, the key. Loving our opponents is not just moral. It is strategic. It is pragmatic. It is how we choose the more effic- effective and efficient campaigns and policies and strategies in order to enact cultural in- and institutional change and not just go after individuals. Um, I, I've, I've noticed in my engaging with people who hold white supremacist beliefs that beneath those beliefs is is immense unresolved grief, that they are grieving the illusion that this country ever belonged to them in the first place. And so somebody needs to be able to tend those wounds and to help them move them through the grief process so it doesn't keep hardening into hate so that on the other side of this, and I, I want to be able to hold up an, a, a vision of a, of a nation that they can see themselves in too. Because the nation is in the midst of a massive demographic transition. Within 25 years, people of color will exceed the number of white people for the first time since colonization. And we are at this crossroads. There are those who want to, like that woman, are, are struggling to return America to a past where only people like them hold economic, political, or cultural power. And yet... If enough of us labor for a nation that is truly multi-faith, multi-racial, multi-gendered, multicultural, where we strive to protect the dignity of every person, the wellness and the safety of every single one of us, then we might finally be able to birth the America that we have always dreamed. And that returns me to my question, is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? Is this a moment like never before in history where we are waking up to the inequalities and the injustices that have long plagued this country and have gathering enough information to be able to decide that, yes, it is our role to labor for the nation that we want? And that's where the midwife says, breathe and push because we don't go to battle alone. We don't give birth alone. We need each other. I needed Parker in my ear. I needed my son in my ear (laughs) to be able to breathe in order to push again because this will be one long labor. You know, that that all of what you just said is very powerful for me. And coming around to this idea again of breathing and pushing, you know, um, a very female metaphor too and claiming birth as a powerful metaphor for change and transformation. Uh, They call it transition for a reason, you know, and that we are in a time right now when um, of of enormous change, you know, we, we, we we can only move forward, we can't go back at this point. And so um, the the idea of breathing and pushing and and, and, of uh, action that is then uh, balanced with time to um, be with a safe sanctuary, with friends, with with those you love, to ex- be able to express freely. Um, I mean, just this back and forth of love for others, but also love for self. Um, gosh, you know, just it's just a, a, an amazing uh, metaphor. It claims something, and it also describes something so well. Thank you. Oh, I think, you know, it, it has been medicine for myself. <laughs> it's It's been how I've been able to last. And I'm so happy and grateful that it's useful to you and to others. 
Transition is the final stage in birthing labor. It is the most painful and dangerous stage. It's where the body opens up to 10 centimeters, contractions are less than a minute apart, there's barely time to breathe between them. It feels like dying, and yet it is a stage that precedes the birth of new life. And having undergone that experience, I began to think about birthing and transition as metaphor. I thought about how Metaphors of war have been universally shared for so long. When we say, you know, fight the good fight or, or become a warrior, we all know what that means. It's the courage that's needed to, to, um, to fight for what's right. So, too, I began to think about why we don't use metaphors for a birthing universally for all of us who are in the midst of many different creative labors, the labor of raising a family or making a life or building a movement or rebirthing a nation that I think the mechanics of birthing and that kind of courage to try to create something new can be available to all of us, that it is a not a biological right, but it is a human right to tap into that wellspring of caregiving and laboring that all of us are capable of. Um, and so um, being able to invite people into all of us being midwives for a nation yet to be born, it has been... Um, an empowering way to invite people to think about a way to fight for justice, to labor for justice in a way that is sustainable. Because the midwife doesn't say breathe once and push the rest of the way. No, she <laughs> says breathe and then push and then breathe again. And so I have to ask myself as I ask others, how are you breathing every day? Who are you breathing with? And then how are you pushing? What is your particular role in this great labor? Because every single one of us has a role. And revolutionary love as a framework is a way to invite everyone to imagine what their role might be. Is it your job to step up and love others in solidarity right now? Is it your job to reach across lines of difference and re and try to love your opponents? Is it your job to teach us how to love ourselves? All of us have a role in the labor of revolutionary love. That's, uh, I'm so glad you said that, Valerie, because ever since we began talking about all this, I've been asking myself as a, as a man who has none of these bodily or biological experiences, I've been asking myself, well, Parker, what's your role in the midwifery of a new society? Because I so profoundly share your vision. And I wanted to ask you to, I remember a story you told about um, the, the hours or the day just prior to your remarkable TED uh, talk on revolutionary love, which we're going to link people to on our, on our website, and also about the birthing of, of Kafi and Ananda. Um, you talked about team, the team that gathered around you to help you through that transition period you know, the struggle to put together a TED Talk that really felt right for the moment which at which you um, succeeded just brilliantly, and the moment of birthing two children. The importance of team, a team of women in your case, but the kind of team we need to birth a new society. Could you say a few words about that? No one ought to go into labor alone. We need each other. I remember on the birthing table, 
um, the moment a voice in me said, I can't, when the midwife said that she could see the baby's head and all I could feel was a ring of fire. And I turned to my mother and I said, I can't. And she began to whisper my grandfather's prayer in my ear. The hot winds cannot touch you. You are brave. She kept saying, you are brave. And at that moment, I saw my mother standing next to me and her mother behind her and her mother behind her and her mother behind her. I saw a line of women who had pushed through the fire before me disappear into the distant horizon. And only through recalling the bravery of my ancestors could I breathe and then push and my son was born. I thought about that particular team, the composition of that team that you named Parker, how it was my mother at my side, but also my ancestors at my back. And then, of course, my husband and my father, each of them played very specific roles and helped me summon the wise woman inside of me to tell me, to make me believe that I was brave enough to face the fire and do this and breathe through this and push through this. I, I need those, that same team around me right now. It is so dark in our nation that this pandemic has just exposed the, like a social x-ray, it's exposed all the injustices, the racial and class inequalities that have long plagued our nation. It just feels like it's getting darker. The fires are burning brighter. How are we breathing through this every day when the death toll keeps climbing? How are we catching our breath when grief and rage have become so intimate to us and we can't even reach out to touch one another? How do we find each other in this time when we must be physically distant? There are ways to reach out now in ways that we need each other like never before in order to help one another breathe. And I have to ask myself, who are my ancestors at my back? My grandfather, my father's father, survived the 1918 Spanish flu as a farm laborer in California. And I've been going back through his story and ca calling upon his face and his his voice and feeling his resilience and his bravery as I'm thinking about how to face this pandemic. How do we call our ancestors at our backs, those who teach us how to be brave? And then how do we call our midwives to our side? Right now, I, I have the benefit of being able to be with my husband and sheltering in place with my children. But I think all of us have somebody we know who can tell us in real time, just picking up the phone to tell us we are you are brave. <laughs> you can do this. You can breathe through this. And then how are we protecting the spaces in our days in order to get quiet enough, quiet enough in our minds, quiet, quieting the social media feeds and the cacophony of breaking news out in the world? How are we getting quiet enough to hear our own deepest wisdom speak to us? That's what I need right now, Parker. My ancestors at my back, my midwives at my side, and enough quiet, enough breath to hear my own wise woman speak to me. Mm. If I can call upon those three sources of wisdom, then I can continue this labor. You know, Valerie, I have to say, during this pandemic, I think after hearing you speak and, and describe this as you have, um, and the team and the idea of who is helping you breathe, you know, I think I'm taking some of the deepest breaths I have uh, since sometime in February. <laughs> <laughs> so I really want to thank you for giving this wisdom, um, this experience, the, the wisdom, the the encouragement, uh, the very human vulnerability to tell these stories. I just, I really appreciate it. And I just have to say that, that 
Thank you. I'm I'm breathing. <laughs> Me too. Me too. And you know what happens when we make space for breath? We become present to the present moment. And joy might rush in and find us. That's what I found, that we can't force joy. But when we give our senses to the present moment, it creates the opening and the possibility for joy to find us, even in the midst of great labors, even in the midst of so much pain and despair and suffering, that joy is possible and that joy gives us energy. Every night, no matter how dark or cruel or violent the day has been, no matter how difficult, we have dance time in our house. <laughs> we, even when I don't want to, my son says, Mommy, dance time. I play the music and I usually I'm just kind of swinging back and forth looking really miserable until like one of the children leaps in my arms and I throw them in the air and they're laughing and I start laughing. And this is what we did on election night, actually. <laughs> one of the darkest nights of my life. We had dance time. We were dancing and mm. dancing let joy in. And joy reminds us of everything that is good and beautiful and worth fighting for. Joy gives us energy for the long labor. So yes, let's breathe together and let's let joy be our lifeblood too. Oh, well, um, we're, we're, we're getting closer to the end of our conversation, but I think I could sit here in conversation with you for like, like maybe days. <laughs> um, but we usually ask uh, each of our, our guests the question, well, what's on your growing edge now? In my own mind and heart, it is believing that I am enough. I think for my whole life, I've been plagued by this little critic in my mind who tells me that I am not smart enough, not good enough, not strong enough, not beautiful enough, not enough. And it's been a long, long process in calling forth the wise woman in me to say, no, my love, you are brave enough to love myself enough to know that the labor I do each day, doing my best each day for my children and for my family, for myself, for my community, for my movement, for my country, for the world, let that, that is enough each day to think of each day as its own lifetime, to honor the day, to let it go and know that I'm enough and then to wake up to the gift of a new lifetime. That piece, which comes at the very end of the book, is what my growing edge is right now. Mm -hmm. Valerie, as, as we close out, and I know that both Carrie and I wish we had hours more uh, you know, from 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 Valerie's closet to your ear, we've heard this these amazing amazing stories and and counsels and tender ministry. Um, the first section of the book is "See No Strangers, Loving Others." The second section is "Tend the Wound, Loving Opponents," and the third is "Breathe and Push, Loving Ourselves." And we will provide full information on our on our podcast site, our website, uh, about the fact that the book is coming out uh, on June sixteenth, uh, wherever you purchase your books, and is now available for pre-order. 
And I know that many, many people have been doing that. I'm one of them, even though I've already read it. Um, I, I know that I speak for Carrie when I say, Valerie, it's just been such an honor and such, um, I don't even want to use the word inspiration, which can be a little thin, but such profound encouragement, um, soul food, really, to speak with you, to listen to you, and blessings and power to you in your continued work with revolutionary love. Um, we encourage everyone to check out the the Rev Love, as we call it, website, and to sign the manifesto and to join the movement. You have a very active presence on social media, and we'll make it easy for our listeners to find all of that. So I just want to thank you so very much. You make me brave, Parker. <laughs> me too. listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave us a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into the conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer, and much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quans for creative envisioning, direction, production, and yes, she is great with revolutionary love.